welcome to the Mind and Matter podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Aaron Gruber. Before that, just a few housekeeping items. One, we are back this week after a couple weeks off. There will be new episodes as usual every Friday moving forward. I have a pretty good group of guests booked or in the process of being booked for the next month or two. It includes people you've probably never heard of before because they have little to no social media presence, as well as people that have a very large social media presence and podcasts of their own. So I'm pretty excited about that. We also have t-shirts that are available on Etsy. There are a few different designs that you'll see. So if you've seen some of these that I've worn on the YouTube version of the podcast, you may recognize them, but look for the link in the episode description if you want to check those out. Also, I am starting this week a weekly newsletter, and I haven't sent it out yet, but I'll put a link in the episode description that will allow you to subscribe to that. I'm imagining that what I'll use this for is to give people weekly updates on the podcast in terms of what happened that week or the past week, as well as who some upco- upcoming guests are. I will also provide a snapshot of some of the scientific research, at least that I've read in the previous week or two. So I'll just provide some bullet points and links to interesting studies that have come out related to topics that are relevant to the podcast. And I'll share things like quotes and tidbits from various books and other writings that I'm reading that I think are going to be interesting to people that like the podcast, as well as provide probably some short or even medium form writing of my own, just some of my general thoughts on either last week's episode or some of the new developments in the research world and things like that. So again, look for that in the episode description. So today I'm talking to Aaron Gruber, who's a neuroscientist. His lab studies how the brain learns from experience in order to make good future decisions. We discussed a variety of topics related to cognition and learning in the brain, including what we know about how the brain detects salience and assigns value, how it makes decisions about what to do, and how it constructs flexible models of the world that are sometimes called schemas. We also discussed how neuropsychiatric disorders, like depression, for example, can influence the brain's schemas, as well as how they are impacted by psychoactive drugs, ranging from stimulants to psychedelics. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. You can listen to the audio-only version on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, or any other podcast directory. You can also watch the video version on YouTube, which sometimes comes with visual components, movies or images that I'm looking at with the guest. And, you know, please like us, uh, give us a five-star rating and all of that stuff. Comments are much appreciated. It helps give more visibility. And so if you do that, it, it really does help out. And also check out the episode description, both for the audio and the video version. I'm going to put useful links and things that you might find helpful down there. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist an all-natural cannabis company specializing in dose-controlled cannabis products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Aaron Gruber. Professor Aaron Gruber, thank you for joining me. Hi, nice to be here, Nick. Can you start out by just telling everyone what you do and what you're interested in? Uh, Yeah, so um, my background is maybe a little bit different. I started in um, an engineering discipline, uh, went through sort of a computational route, 
and then ended up doing experiment, experimental work for the past uh, 20 years or so. And so what I do is a lot of behavior, some pharmacology, so giving drugs. This is in rodents. Um, and using technologies to record neurons as animals are doing things. And then using computational tools to try to understand how the brain is representing things and processing information. I see. So you're kind of an engineer that became a neuroscientist. Yeah. That's, uh, that, that's pretty common, I think, given all of the uh, engineering and the gadgets involved. Yeah, it is now. Um, yeah, back in the 90s, it was a little more rare. But now, you know, there's a lot of cross-fertilization between um, technology and biology. And it's really amazing how things, how quickly things are going. So a lot of what you study has to do with, you know, some pretty big questions in neuroscience, behavior, decision-making, cognition, you know, learning, how all of these things interact in different ways. There's a lot of different directions we can go. One of the things I wanted to talk about first was dopamine. And the reason I wanted to start there was it's a neurotransmitter in the brain that many people have heard of. Probably most people who are listening have at least heard of it. And, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty well known. And there's sort of a cartoon version of dopamine that most people have in their mind, right? So the, the pop science characterization of dopamine is it's the pleasure molecule, quote unquote, things that feel good cause dopamine release. This makes us want to do them again. Drugs of abuse, you know, hijack the reward system by causing a lot of dopamine release, which is what can lead to addiction. And so can you just talk about what dopamine is and how accurate or complete is that sort of story we often hear about it? Yeah, so you, you did a nice uh, encapsulation, uh, and it's uh, I think it, it shows kind of the power of, uh, I guess what we could call a meme, a conceptual meme. Uh, so the, the person that originally proposed dopamine as a, as a pleasure, mediator of pleasure, uh, walked that story back a few decades ago. But once the genie was out of the bottle, it's, uh, it's hard to revert that. Mm. So most people uh, in the scientific context that study it you know, have long realized that uh, dopamine itself uh, is not pleasurable. And one of the reasons we know this is that uh, one of the precursors for dopamine called L-DOPA is the first line treatment for uh, Parkinson's disease in which the dopamine neurons die off. And when you give someone L-DOPA, um, the, essentially that crosses the blood-brain barrier uh, that increases the amount of dopamine that the surviving dopamine cells release and kind of normalizes uh, the motoric and other deficits. It's not pleasurable at all. Uh, and so physicians, uh, neurologists have to titrate a benefit with you know, how much will they actually tolerate because it makes people irritable, makes them feel unwell. And so if dopamine really was the pleasure drug, then, you know, you could go to the CD part of town and, you know, buy some old dope or whatever, and it would make you feel good. And that, that you know, that doesn't happen. Um, so it really seems that it's the opioid system is, is probably the best candidate for, for pleasure. Um, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of crossover. So, you know, the fact of increasing dopamine can cause, you know, downstream release of other things that do have these mood elevating properties. Um, so that's, you know, it's a sort of a testament to how networked things are and how much crosstalk there is. Um, so that, that's the pleasure part. Now, uh, there's an entire another story with, with dopamine uh, that is uh, fantastic and beautiful. It integrates biology and, and theory and computer science. Um, and uh, I guess, you know, what I often tell my undergraduate students is that in a way it kind of broke my heart 
because it was so beautiful. And so the, the story is this, that, um, that, that the signaling of dopamine provides what's called a reward prediction error signal. And that means that things that are unexpectedly good increase dopamine. You get a little, like a one second, a little bit less than a one second kind of burst of dopamine. Um, when things come just as you expected, it doesn't change. And when things are worse than expected, you get this dip. And so this is this linkage with dopamine as a, as a learning signal. And so it turns out that if you, if you have this kind of reward prediction error signal, you can learn some really amazing things. And so you know, there's a company maybe you've heard of called DeepMind that was you know, bought by Google for a half a billion dollars or something. Uh, and so this spawned this entire field of what's called deep reinforcement learning. So this idea of reinforcement learning is all predicated on this idea that if you have this reward prediction error signal, you can learn all kinds of stuff. And so this was actually shown in the early 90s um, from uh, Andy Bartow, and, uh, who's retired, and Rich Sutton, who's at the University of Alberta. So if you do this, you can train a computer to play chess, to do robotics applications. Like you can do, you know, a really uh, a surprising and amazing array of, of things. Meaning you, you can solve algorithmically these hard problems just by providing this reward prediction error signal. Meaning that when it does what you want, you give it a, you know, you give it a little, a virtual dopamine hit. Uh, and when it does what you didn't, then you kind of take that away, you pause it. And so just by giving that, um, you, you can learn lots of stuff. And so that came back to neuroscience. I mean, it, the original idea came out of neuroscience uh, several decades ago, but then it was only sort of formalized uh, starting sort of in the 90s. And then that kind of fed back from the computer science people back into neuroscience and said, well, hey, you know, if algorithms can use this word prediction error signal to solve all these problems, then maybe that's what dopamine is doing in the brain. That it's a way, you know, it's a teach, a fundamental teaching signal in the brain to solve all kinds of problems. I see. So computer scientists had figured out that if you had this kind of signal, it was very powerful. You could, you could write computer code that was able to do impressive stuff using this kind of signal. And then in animals, neuroscientists discovered that actually there are dopamine neurons, it turned out, that instantiate this type of signal in, in the wetware of the brain. Exactly. Yes. So, uh, yeah, Wolfram Schultz is credited to, um, a neuroscientist uh, working in, in Europe was credited with uh, doing recordings of dopamine neurons in a monkey. Uh, and a very simple experiment. Um, you unexpectedly give them a raisin and no dopamine neurons would, would fire up. Um, but if you played this game a few times, so if you approach them and you have a raisin in your hand and you open your hand, um, in the beginning, they didn't expect it and you would get the dopamine burst. But after a while, meaning 15, 20 times, the monkey would come to expect it. And now the dopamine neurons didn't fire anymore, even though we got the raisin. And then, you know, scientists being what we are, we have to manipulate things. Now you come with your, with your fist and no raisin in it. Monkey expects a raisin, you open it, it's not there. Now the dopamine neurons pause. So normally they're ticking along at about one time per second. Hmm. And uh, when they activate, they, you know, they go up to like, they'll generate these bursts of five or six action potentials very quickly. And that causes the release of dopamine. Um, and then the pause just means that you've got a second or so without that action potential in it. And so yeah. that, that was kind of the first, you know, when, when people saw that, they said, oh, you know, holy cow, that looks a lot like this reward prediction error signal. And does that go just in the direction of 
positive valence? Do they do this in response to the presence or absence of rewards or, or does it go in the opposite direction as well? Yeah, fantastic question. So uh, for quite a while, the, the emphasis was really on the positive part. Um, but then what it turns out, so, so that's, that's sort of the, the beauty of everything, right? That, that it's this relatively simple thing, this word prediction error signal that can solve all kinds of hard problems without having to, to teach an animal or a computer like how to play backgammon or chess, just telling them you lost or you won right at the end of it, right? And it, the, the algorithm can kind of figure everything else out. Um, but then, you know, as you pointed out, then data that came in over time was a little, was inconsistent with that fundamental idea. And so one of those pieces of data are that some dopamine neurons, it turns out, respond to uh, aversive things and to cues that precede aversive things. One thing I forgot to mention is that it's not only just the cue, so like, you know, when the, you know, when the raisin comes out, but if you give it a tone or something ahead of time, so if you go, you know, beep, and then two seconds later, you present the uh, raisin, what happens is that the dopamine neurons, then they start to respond to the cues that precede it. And they'll actually propagate backwards in time. The reason that becomes important is uh, for um, problems like addiction and overeating um, and, you know, this is, it ties into advertising that, you know, the reason that brands become very, you know, it's thought the reason that brands become very uh, potent is that if you've had a positive association, um, you know, by having, uh, you know, the symbols and the, the logos and icons, right, they want to sort of drive that system. And, you know, uh, I would say a, a wider view of what dopamine and associated systems do is that they, they capture attention. And that what it looks like is that they're really there um, to detect what's called salience, mm-hmm. uh, which, which just is a term that means something is important behaviorally to you. So for an animal, that would be positive things like rewards, but also things that might precede a shock or a startling tone or whatever. Um, but, you know, the, the idea is that if you're driving down the street, you know, say you really love McDonald's, you're driving down the highway. Um, even if you're not necessarily hungry, all of a sudden you see the, the golden arches sign and that trigger is like, oh, hey, you know, should we get McDonald's? Um, right. That, that it seems to tap into that, that system, this um, sort of salient system of that information gets into your brain and then you decide whether you're going to act on it or not. I see. So is it fair to say that the, it's much better to think about dopamine as detecting salience and being involved with the motivation to act on what you're seeing? Well, you know, we think so. That that's kind of my opinion. I mean, other people are much more still on the reward part. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that that's the beauty of science is that uh, uh, different people can you know be led by different hypotheses. And you know, we don't know. I mean, the truth is probably going to be somewhere in between. That yes, it has something to do with with value um, that we haven't talked about yet. Um, but you know, this other data indicates that it's doing some other things too. So you know, one story that humans uh, repeatedly discover about biology is that things get reused. And so in the beginning, it might very well have been only for value. But then, you know, as time has come along, that same system now has been co-opted to do, you know, other functions as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we see that in, in lots of places. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could unpack the idea from a neuroscience perspective of value a little bit more. Um, Some of the things that come to mind for me are, you know, when you think about these dopamine neurons and this reward prediction error signal, you know, we know computationally this type of signal is very interesting. It can be used for learning. 
Um, we know that some of these neurons are going to respond to good things or bad things, but also in, in some sense, the information of the goodness and badness was already there, right? In these neurons, like if they're, if you're giving an animal uh, a treat or you're giving it a shock and in some sense, it already knows that it's good or bad. So how does, you know, learning the goodness or badness of something tie to sort of in, instinctive or innately, innately present notions of goodness or badness that are already there? Yeah, so that uh, that's a really good question, and and maybe we can. Uh, I'd like to cycle back to that that question in a little bit once we cover a little more territory. Um, but let me you know let me unpack sort of the canonical reinforcement learning, uh, which involves value, and then maybe later we can talk about some of these other things. So what you're saying is 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 very important that uh, animals have to have these innate systems to feel pain, to feel pleasure. Um, as I mentioned before, you know, probably involves other things uh, like opiates or opioid receptors and, and other things. So you have to have that. So, so, you know, it looks like dopamine really isn't involved in adjudicating, you know, I really like that or I didn't, but let's, we'll talk about value. So uh, again, the, the canonical story is imagine you have a choice between, you know, two things, uh, A and B and um you don't know anything about A or B, right? You're completely naive and you go. And uh, so it's food, they're food items. We'll just, we'll just say it to, to make this easy. You go and you taste A. Um, you had some expectation going into it, even though you hadn't tried it before. And this, this is something you actually need for reinforcement learning to work. You need a bit of optimism because if you thought everything was terrible, you'd never try it in the first place. So you have to say, well, you know, there's A, maybe they'll taste good, right? I'll, I'll try it. Um, so you taste it. And there's some system that gives you some hedonic pleasure, right? It's sweet or fatty or whatever. Um, and so you, you, that, that somehow in the brain is translated or, or I guess triggers uh, a dopamine response. So if it was better than you were expecting, then you get this dopamine response. What happens then is that uh, you presume that the sensory systems that were involved in seeing A, that you know, somewhere in your brain, so you have the, the immediate sensory, visual, olfactory, whatever, but then you have these association cortices. And what they're there is they kind of assemble these sensory things into some internal representation of the thing. Um, and then the, the thought is then the amount of dopamine that, that when dopamine gets released, that kind of stamps it with an amount of value, meaning that you have this pattern of activity that's representing the sensory elements, but that some of the neurons also that are involved in this pattern are going to signal the value of it. And so when dopamine increases, those neurons strengthen their synapses. And so they, they give a, a, an encoding of the value. Now say you go to B, you taste B and it's just sort of meh. It's not, not, a, not, great, not as great as A. So you have a different set of cells that were on for B say, uh, you know, it's kind of exactly what you expected. So the dopamine cells didn't turn on those value cells then don't increase their representation of value. Now, when, now when you have a choice, so you come back, uh, so imagine, you know, you taste A and B a few times, each time you taste A, right, your assessment of value goes up. The value for B kind of stays where it was, right? Each, each time you taste A, you get a little dopamine that increases incrementally the valuation until it reaches some state where the taste and the hedonic pleasure you get from it matches your expectation. Then you don't get any dopamine change anymore. And so it stabilizes at this level. 
Okay. Now, when you have a choice later on, you're going to choose between A and B, right? You're at a party, they're out on the table. Um, you know, so there's these Asian snacks that you've never seen before. And you go, ah, like there's A, I got to decide between A and B. Well, what you can do is you can use the difference in valuation. And so if you learn that A had a higher value than B, then reinforcement learning, uh, the choice element of it says that you should tend to pick the things that have higher value. And there's different ways you can do that. You could exclusively pick the thing that has the highest value and that's called a greedy system, or you can kind of do it probabilistically, meaning that the bigger the difference, the more likely it is you're gonna pick A over B. And so that's the, that's the reinforcement learning story. And you can do lots of amazing things with that. And the trick is just how do you convert you know, the sedonic thing to a dopamine, to a value? Uh, that's a very active um, sort of research question. So how well would you say reinforcement learning captures what we actually observe in animals when you give them two choices? Okay, so, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a beautiful theory uh, and it works really well in some contexts. So uh, the, the one uh, in the literature uh, has the colloquial name of N-arm bandit. And so that's where you have multiple devices and the, the one-armed bandit is, a, is a, a slang term for a slot machine. And so what that connotes is that you have these different choice options or different machines. And when you press the button, you have a certain probability of getting a payout. When you do this in humans uh, and uh, monkeys and even rodents, you, you get behavior out that's very consistent with reinforcement learning. So you get choices that kind of track the, the probability of getting paid out, or you can also do it with reward value. Uh, the problem comes in when you start to do uh, different types of experimental designs, then it, it doesn't work as well. Um, and, you know, th th this is where I think the story, you know, at least in, in my development of a scientist, I had to step back because the, you know, from an engineering perspective, the reinforcement story is, right, it's beautiful, it's elegant, it's, it, it makes predictions that you can test. Um, but then, you know, when you get into the actual biology of the brain, uh, you know, I think you really have to think more evolutionarily and you have to think uh, in terms of the environments that animals came from and that the brain really evolved to solve those problems. And, you know, historically there weren't really uh, N-arm bandits, there weren't, you know, kind of these other things. And so, you know, what we're kind of looking at in those kind of designs are maybe some of the outliers. Mm -hmm. So it's not, you know, the, the term for that is ethological. So ethological mm -hmm. would be, uh, the environment and conditions in which an animal species has been living for a long time. And so they've kind of adapted to these things. I want to unpack for people a little bit more how you think about what a choice is at the level of the brain. So at, at a high level, it's intuitive, right? What a choice is. We all make choices all the time. If you see two items of food on the table, A and B, we know what a choice is. We we, we sit there, we might contemplate it for a moment, and then we go, okay, um, A is better for some reason. I'm going to pick that one. Now, as a neuroscientist, how do you think about localizing the where the choice is happening or what the mechanisms are? Like, for example, you know, I can imagine that one way to think about it is, well, if I want to reach for A versus B, that requires two different motor programs to execute in the brain. And so maybe the choice is sort of whatever network or circuit is is you know looking at both of those motor programs and then 
committing to one of them and or inhibiting the other one. How do you think about choice at that kind of mechanistic brain level and, and where you actually look for it happening in the brain? So that's a fantastic question. Uh, it's a really deep question. Um, you know, I thought, uh, so, you know, going into all of this when I was younger, I thought, well, you know, obviously I know what a choice is. That, that, that's easy. Um, there's a, a psychological phenomenon that's referred to as the Kruger-Dunning effect. I don't know if you're familiar with this. But what this is, is that if you ask people, um, if you ask people to rank their competence in something, uh, and you actually plot it against how much experience they have in that domain, people with little experience tend to overestimate how much competence they have in that domain. But then as they gain more experience, they actually rank their competence lower. And then at some point, you, you know, hopefully you have this inflection and you know you become the master, and then you know, you know, you, you can evaluate that you really do know what you're talking about and you really have the experience to talk about it. Um, you know, a good example for me is that uh, mountain biking, which is something I've picked up uh, in the past couple of years, right? I, you know, I know how to ride a bike and it's just riding a bike down a, a woods path, right? Well, no, there's a lot of skills that are different. And, uh, you know, it's not until you get out there that you realize, oh, you know, oh crap, I'm, you know, I'm a newbie. Uh, and so anyway, go, going back to your, you know, the question you're asking is very much an important one. And what I want to do is kind of go back a little bit and, for anybody who's interested in this, there's a really excellent book, and it's called The Evolution of Learning Memory Systems. And this is by Elizabeth Murray, Steve Wise, and Kim Graham. And so what they've done is that they, they ask this kind of question, this, this uh, evolutionary and ethological question. And so they traced invertebrates back. And so the, the earliest vertebrate, meaning animals with a backbone, showed up about a half a billion years ago. And so that's before flowering plants, that's before trees, uh, you know, the only things around are these kind of like ferny things, right? So it's a really long time ago. And so they asked the question, you know, what, um, you know, what, what did these animals have to do? And they were aquatic, so they're swimming around. And the idea is, is that, um, you know, they have motor systems that they can swim around, they can catch whatever their prey was, right? So that when they detect the, the smaller things, they can eat it. When they see a a shadowy thing, they run away from it. Um, and so, you know, you can, you can think of those as responses in a general term, but, you know, in a way, those are decisions, right? Do I keep swimming from, do I, you know, do I continue to try to harvest food or do I run away from this thing because I see a shadow? And in very simple organisms, these things are all very kind of automated, right? The sort of prey drive and uh, predator avoidance. Um, and, you know, as systems have evolved, really what's happened is that uh, the same architecture has persisted, but, but it's become more elaborated. So even those very early organisms had uh, homologs of even the medial prefrontal cortex. It had a simple visual cortex. It had, you know, some subcortical stuff, the basal ganglia and, you know, these other, uh, lots of these other sort of deep structures. Um, and then what's happened over time is that those, those are really just sort of, you know, elaborated. And in the extreme case of the great apes, right, we have this massive expansion of um, the neocortex. So the, you know, the folded up kind of tissue that's, that's out on the outside. Um, and so in an ethological context, we really kind of have to think, you know, or I think using that as a context to interpret behaviors and responses is, is quite important. Now, Okay, that's a lot of uh, pontificating on, on these things that might sound esoteric, but 
you know, it still comes back into play. So uh, in, in my mind, and I think there's pretty good evidence for this, you can have some choices are just mediated by your, the, your motor systems. So th those are the circuits in your brain that, you know, control your limbs and, uh, you know, other, other muscles. And so we have uh, some good uh, data for that. And, and we can talk about that some more if you want. There's other systems. So uh, for instance, if you are having a conversation with someone and you're walking up to a vending machine to get a snack and you just, you know, you sort of punch in a button or two uh, to get, to get your snack, right? That you might think of that as something that's more driven by your motor systems. And so maybe, you know, every, most of the time you press B15 and that's, you know, whatever snack that you're accustomed to having. And if you do that enough, that response is uh, mediated by what's oftentimes referred to as the habit system. It's probably more appropriately called the sensory response system. But this is a system that involves, um, it doesn't really involve a lot of your neocortex, just a little strip of motor cortex. And it's largely mediated by uh, the set of structures called the basal ganglia, which are uh, evolutionarily, again, very, very old um, and very important for uh, executing motor outputs. So that system is perfectly capable to, to generate a, a complicated output to, to get your snack. Um, and what we find in the lab in animals and in humans is that you tend to rely on that more when other brain systems are preoccupied. So again, kind of looking at a higher level view, what I mean by that is that the brain has multiple systems that can uh, guide your choice. So you can think of one as kind of a motor system, like I just described. You can think of one as more a cognitive system where, you know, you're debating over the calorie content of each snack and whether the chocolate was ethically sourced and, you know, these more cognitive things. You have other systems that are more probably emotionally guided as well. And so you have these multiple systems that are interacting. And at any one time, one of them might have a larger influence on your choice than others, depending on many different factors. So, you know, when, when you ask, you know, what's a choice in, you know, in a, the, you know, what a scientist would say is that it's some sort of response, which is, is vague and it's intentionally vague because otherwise you have to make presumptions about what's doing what and what part of the brain is, is, you know, calling the shots. And that seems to depend on a lot of things. I see. So, so the choice is related to the execution of a motor program and not the execution of potential alternative programs, but you know, what's happening just upstream of that. Well, can... It can, Sorry. It can, but then, you know, imagine another scenario that's largely cognitive. Mm -hmm. So imagine, you know, choosing a car or vehicle, right? It's not something that really involves, you know, it's much different than a vending machine problem. And so, you know, it's unlikely that your motor systems are going to be uh, largely the ones responsible for, you know, generating the output in that case. So it's probably going to be a more, you know, we like to think that it's going to be a more cognitive thing because you're going to look at, you know, gas mileage, or is it a hybrid or, you know, I have five people in my family, so I need something with a backseat. Um, and, you know, this, this gets more into the psychology literature, but, but, you know, what it ends up is that a lot of times people have already made uh, an emotional choice about something and then they just rationalize it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's, there's not really a utility argument to be made for, you know, a red two-seater Ferrari, 
for a half a million dollars, right? When a hundred will do the same thing. So, you know, it, it's a really, it's an important question. I think it's an active uh, area of research, like how much of it is sort of emotionally driven versus sort of cognitive system versus uh, other types of systems that could, that could uh, generate a choice. Mm -hmm. But, but it sounds like you, you would not say that there's one physical locus of decision-making in the brain, you know, wh where quote unquote, a decision is happening depends on the type of decision and all these other variables. Yes. So, um, when we use terms like cognitive versus emotional versus motor, how, and this is going to be a somewhat vague question, we all have an intuition for what those mean. And in some sense, we're sort of imposing, imposing those things on the brain. Um, how, how distinct are those concepts in terms of how cleanly they can be separated when we actually look inside the brain? Like there's a circuits mediating emotional stuff versus cognitive stuff. And how much of it is just sort of linguistic convenience for us? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that, uh, that is, uh, I'm using unabashed uh, jargon. And, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't fly very well in a, in a very strictly academic sense, but, you know, it, it's convenient to use that kind of jargon because it, it, it does convey kind of a lot of information, you know, with a very compact language. And again, you know, your question is very excellent. And if I, if I had to guess, if I had to place a bet, I would say that the motor systems are fairly separate from the other ones, but that sort of this idea of, of cognitive and emotion, I think are very intertwined mm -hmm. and that there's not a clean separation. Um, you know, we know this, uh, there's, there's a lot of good evidence for this. And so this is something, uh, you know, I'm, I'm quite interested in and, you know, it's something we can certainly talk about some more if you're interested in. One of the things I wanted to ask you to help us think about is like the way, the different types of ways that we humans learn compared to many other animals. So for example, um, we and our dogs can both learn from direct sensory feedback of positive and negative reinforcement signals, right? So if you think about training your dog, you know, you give it a treat when it does something good, you positively reinforce what you want it to do, say in response to your command. And it sort of learns right there in the moment incrementally from, from getting that reward. Um, we can do that type of learning as well. Um, a lot of the learning that, that you know we've done throughout our lives is like that. But humans and certain other animals can learn and make decisions in other kinds of ways, it seems. We can actually generalize things that we've learned and make intelligent decisions in novel contexts that we've never actually been in before. So we, in some sense, we can know the right decision in a new context, even though we've never actually been in that context and gotten any kind of direct reinforcement before. So can you talk a little bit about sort of that difference between say the human and the dog and what's, what might be going on there? Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, that, that's a, that's a great question. And I'll say right off the bat that I think uh, animals capacity to do what you just talked about is uh, greatly underappreciated. Hmm. So I think many kind of animals actually can do that. Um, and I think uh, even as back as the 1940s, so there was a very pioneering, uh, uh, behavioral scientist, um, uh, Edward, uh, oh geez, was, uh, Tolman, sorry. Uh, so Tolman, he did these very clever experiments with animals, with rats, uh, where, and uh, this is a good segue for this. So he would have, let's see, the simplest version of this would be that there would be, 
a starting position, and then there would be a place with food. And what the animals learned just over a few trials is that uh, there was one track that would go like this, kind of like a, you know, a, a C shape. And so they would do that a couple times and that's all they needed. And then what he did is he put them at the starting point, but now he had these um, dead ends that kind of pointed radially in all different directions. And so if the animals just learned, hey, to get my food, I needed to go directly west, right? And then go north and then east, right, to get my food. You might expect that to happen. And, and some animals did that. But the majority of the rats, what they did instead is that they went on the dead end that would have made a straight line for the food. Mm. And so, so Tolman came, was the originator of this idea of a cognitive map. And he meant this in kind of a spatial domain that, you know, animals very quickly, and we now know that animals do this almost as soon as you bring them into a room, uh, they develop uh, sort of, they, they develop um, a representation in their brain of locations in the space. And so the idea being is that, you know, the rats, even though, even though they learned that, you know, they learned the food is over here only by their experience of running this way, they could use that and knowledge of the space to say, well, if I ran this way, this would be the fastest way to get there. Mm -hmm. They could literally right. triangulate that, the shortest so, path. So I'm sorry. They could literally triangulate the shortest path, even though yeah. they had never taken it before. Exactly. Right. And so that's this idea of having knowledge and being able to act as if you had knowledge uh, with no, without actual prior experience of, of doing that. Um, and so this is where, this is where I think the brain is, even the brains of uh, uh, many kinds of animals still exceeds what we can do uh, with artificial intelligence and machine learning, even though artificial intelligence and machine learning, it's great at very specific tasks. Um, you know, it can now exceed, you know, finding pictures of cats and large images and, and that kind of thing. But it's that technology is largely still beholden to the training set that you give it. Whereas the brain, what it, what it seems to be really good at doing is acting in novel situations, which you mentioned before. And that's really important because the, the natural environments are tremendously complicated, right? So if you got into the woods, there's all these contours, there's leaves rustling, uh, there's branches and tree trunks and scuttling critters, most of which is completely irrelevant to your behavioral well-being. And if you had to sit there and attend to all those things, you wouldn't be able to do the things you need to do. So, you know, imagine you're, you know, you're foraging for mushrooms or, you know, your grubs or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, most of the information that's coming in is irrelevant. And, you know, the best estimates are that that's, that's something like 10 to 20 gigabits per second. Like if you added all the sensory, the, the bandwidth of all the sensory information that's coming in, I mean, it's, it's just tremendous. Mm -hmm. And it's so much that you can't attend to it all. Um, and again, the, the problem that the brains have to solve is that only a few things in the environment are actually relevant to you or salient. And so this comes back to this, the doping system, that what might be happening is that that's one way of you know, out of all this sea of noise that's happening or irrelevant information, when something important happens, right, you need to pay attention to it, whether it's good or bad, you know, a predator or a, a food source. Um, yeah, so, so that, that's that part of it. Um, and now I can talk a little bit about this idea. So how do you act when you're in a novel situation? And again, just about every situation we're in is, is novel. Um, so for instance, you know, one of the just kind of humorous examples I give is that 
if I'm invited to go give a lecture at a new university, um, you know, I wouldn't uh, show up in my underwear drinking a beer. But sitting in my underwear having a beer is perfectly acceptable behavior in my house. So, but how do I know that, right? I, ne I never tried that. I never got the, you know, the negative consequences with deans yelling at me and embarrassing videos on the internet and all, all the consequences that would happen. But I know, you know, I'm pretty confident that that's what would happen. And so it's just, you know, it's an example of that the brain embodies knowledge that it's gleaned through experience, but not necessarily direct experience, right? Because again, I've never done that. And that's, you know, I, I surely know that's not, that's not a good thing to do. And I've not even seen other people do it, right? And so uh, this knowledge, uh, one way that, uh, one term that people use to describe this is what's called a schema. And so your schema is how different things in the world relate to one another uh, that you can use in, um, you can think of it like a simulation. So I can anticipate, hey, you know, wouldn't it be funny if, uh, you know, if I did this thing and I can think, well, you know, if I did this thing, um, you know, these people, well, they might be offended and that wouldn't be good, right? So you can actually think through uh, to, to do those sorts of things and, uh, and make those kinds of choices. And that's typically what's referred to as a model-based choice. So you've got a, a model of how things in the world relate to each other that you can use to estimate what's the outcome going to be. And that can be value, that could be negative consequences. Do you want me to pause or do you want me to get back to why humans uh, are, seem to be different? No, no, let's, let's keep going on this track. Okay. So one, one thing, so you picked dogs, which maybe was an unfortunate uh, uh, animal to pick. Dogs are really interesting because they are, to my knowledge, they're the only animals other than great apes that can infer what humans are looking at by their eyes. Mm. So, you know, if you spend a lot of time with your dog and you're looking at something, your dog will go and look at it. Uh, try that with a cat or a bird or any other animal just isn't going to care. That's not, that's not what they're, uh, what they're about. And so, you know, the reason why I think humans capabilities and other great apes as well, I mean, we're not, uh, we like to think we're a lot different than the great apes, but probably, probably not as much as we think um, that the, to answer the question that you asked earlier, you know, why do humans have this, you know, seemingly, uh, very enhanced capability to, to generate this, uh, these schemas or these mental models of the world. Um, and the reasoning seems to be, and again, this is pretty speculative, but the reasoning uh, goes something like this, that humans are very social. Well, that there's, there's actually two explanations, one of which is that our ancestors uh, spent a lot of time in the trees eating fruit and that that accounts for our, our very good spatial awareness and color vision because uh, fruits that are ripe typically change color. And so there's a utility in being able to tell which fruits are ripe based on color because then you guide your foraging towards uh, the riper fruits, which have more sugar, you get more calories, uh, you have better fitness in your environment. Um, uh, so that that is sort of the the explanation for why humans uh, color and, and sort of spatial awareness is, is good, is that it's an artifact of tree dwelling and fruit eating. Um, but these other sort of more cognitive things, the best explanation that I know of is that it's an uh, it comes from the fact that we're very social animals. And so being in a, a, a social group, 
it's quite important to be able to infer what's going to happen of your actions because when you become dependent on a group, you know, you really, and it's not so much true in, in the modern day, but if you're, you know, in a small clutch of animals, you know, out in the jungle with lots of predators and, you know, the food scarcity comes around as the seasons change or whatever, um, you need to rely on the other members of your group. And so therefore I need to be very attuned. So if we're in the same group, and I'm doing a certain thing, and now I see you start to you know, grimace or whatever, I now have to infer like, well, what did I do or say that's like pissing you off? Because I don't want to do that. Because if I do that, and you know, at a time when you have the food and I don't have the food, then you might not share with me. And so that's bad. And so um, that's sort of the argument where the ability of having sort of these very broad and rich mental models comes from is that, you know, that we have to do a lot of, a lot of inference, particularly in the social domain. Mm -hmm. And that because that, that capability was very successful in the social domain, then it, it applies itself well to other things like mechanical things. And, you know, we haven't been using tools that long, uh, you know, in the context of how long vertebrates have been on, been on the earth, but we've been in social groups for, for a very, very long time, or, you know, our ancestors have. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about something like a schema, some sort of model that the brain can construct, it's, you know, it's obviously a, a pretty complex thing, complex phenomenon. It has to involve the direct sensory information, or at least some of it coming into the nervous system right now in the moment. It has to involve probably integrating information from memory, um, these sort of different value systems and things. So it's a very, very complicated entity that that we're trying to describe how do you actually start to experimentally touch something like that and study it in the lab yeah so this you know this is where technology is enabling so you know these ideas have been around for a while but they've been largely theoretical um, and very hard to test directly because you know the, the standard toolbox you know, prior to 20 years ago, maybe you re could record one or two neurons at a time. You could do brain lesions. Um, you can give pharm uh, pharmaceuticals. Uh, the, you know, the, the difficulty with studying the brain in that way is that, you know, if you damage a certain area and ask, well, you know, does somebody, uh, does this part of the brain, is it involved in that kind of behavior or function? You take it out. Maybe it was, but other regions can take over that functionality. And so it looks like there's actually very little deficit. So in the, in the field, right, there's two questions. Is it necessary and is it sufficient for a particular behavior? Uh, and it's actually quite rare in the neocortex to find things that are necessary and sufficient outside of the primary outside of the sensory area. So there, you know, there are some, you know, language specific uh, centers that, you know, if you take those out, then you, you can't understand speech or produce speech. You know, there are some specialized things in humans uh, like that, but in most other animals without language, that's not necessarily true. Um, but that's not to say like, if you have a stroke in a motor area, right, you can have motor, you know, deficits and those sorts of things. Um, <laughs> sorry, so, I got lost on the question. Yeah, so, no, so, so what are yeah, what are some of the tools and approaches you actually use in the oh, lab? I'm sorry, yeah. So the tools and approaches, yeah. So uh, so there's a lot of redundancy in the brain, mm -hmm. and that you know the, the the upside is is that 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 makes you uh, robust against damage. So if you do have a stroke or you get hit in the head or you know something like that happens, uh, you know you're not other parts of the brain can take over that functionality, which mm. you know helps you to survive. 
it makes it hard to study it with the classic tools. But the new tools that people have developed now are sensors that can now record uh, thousands of neurons at a time. Some of these are optical. And so uh, we can now, uh, I, I just use these tools. I didn't develop any of them. Uh, this takes teams of geneticists and engineers and, you know, tremendous amounts of work. Um, but, you know, the tools have now trickled down to users like me, uh, one of which are uh, proteins that you can use a viral vector to express. Um, this is actually this similar technology to like the COVID vaccine. So uh, if you get little plasmids of RNA and you get those into the cells, they'll express those proteins. Um, and so you can do that. And some of the proteins, for, for instance, will fluoresce when, cal when they come in contact with calcium. Mm. When neurons activate, they typically let calcium come into the cell. And so what will happen is that the cell that's active will fluoresce uh, when it's active, and then it'll stop fluorescing when it's not. So, so you can actually and, use something like a virus or genetic engineering to breed yes. animals that have their neurons have proteins that literally light up so that you can see what they're doing when they're active. Yes. Yes. And so doing that, you can record many thousands of neurons at the same time. Once you start doing that now, you know, once you have that information, now you can use machine learning and other computational tools to try to um, detect or piece together these more uh, complicated things like these schemas. So things that are not, you know, a direct consequence of you flash the light on and some of these neurons, you know, turn off. That certainly happens. But what happens is, you, you know, you turn the light on, there's a few neurons that reliably turn on. There's other sets of neurons that sometimes they turn on, sometimes they don't. Those same neurons, sometimes they turn on when a sound comes on or not. And so it's not completely obvious, like what they care about. But, you know, again, using uh, some machine learning tools, we can now start to ask the question, well, what, you know, what kinds of things uh, are, do these cells care about? And it's usually combinations of other things. And so when we put those combinations together, now we say, ah, you know, here's a cell that, you know, it, it cares about when this light has come on, but it's only after a reward. And so we can now infer that, you know, these kinds of cells are encoding, you know, some retrospective memory or something like that. Hmm. So there's some neurons in the brain, say, say in a patch of cortex that you're recording hundreds or thousands of neurons from, they might be relatively simple in that they have a very close correspondence to one particular thing in the environment. So if there's a light in one side of, of the environment, you know, when the animal sees it, that neuron reliably fires, but there's other neurons that are somehow integrating all of these different channels of information. And so only when something happened in the past in a particular way and the animal sees something and it's moving in a particular direction or something that neuron will be active. Yes. So, the, and that's, yeah, that's a really good explanation at the single cell level. Um, and to find those cells, you have to sample, you know, lots and lots of cells. So you need these, you know, thousands, we're not quite up to hundreds of thousands, uh, but, but technology is, is uh, progressing rapidly. The optical is, is one technology. The other technology is uh, essentially the same technology that's used to make microprocessors. Um, and what you can do is you can make essentially a super thin shaft or several shafts that will have thousands and thousands of electrical recording sites on them. So in that case, you don't have to genetically engineer your animal at all. You just, you know, you stick them in and now you get these electrical signals. Um, and so, you know, again, that's, it's enabled by, um, you know, uh, technology in, you know, engineering. I see. So, so I guess the name of the game is that 
when, when you're studying something as complicated as the brain and how it makes decisions or something like this, the way that you approach it using a variety of different techniques, they could be optical, they could be electrophysiological, you're, you're recording the activity of many, many neurons across a sizable chunk of the brain at the same time. You're actually able to do this in animals that are awake and doing stuff. And then you're essentially just using computational techniques and analytical techniques to try and literally decode what those neurons must be caring about. Yes. Yeah. And, and one of the reasons it's challenging to understand the brain, I mean, one of the beauties of the brain is that it never looks the same twice. <laughs> so even if you, you try to keep everything as identical as you can, uh, more, you know, successive times, it never looks identical. In the past, it was thought that was just noise. Hmm. But I think the contemporary thinking is that that's really just a property of the system that is probably important. And I think, you know, to, to add on a little bit, I think we can use, I think a good analogy is the weather. So if you imagine you want to predict the weather, you know, say somewhere in the central United States, you know, in the past, uh, it would be like, you know, we could have one, one temperature recording in Bismarck. So say you wanted to know the temperature in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, you can you can only sample one place in the United States and you're trying to understand what's going to happen you know, somewhere else. Uh, you know, where the reality is, is that it depends on the pressure and, um, you know, the air currents and all these things. And so what we're doing now, just like, you know, weather prediction has gotten a lot better because now we can have lots of sensors all over the place and we have better models of, of how the weather is changing over time. Right. So it, it behaves as a dynamical, it's called a dynamical system. So anything with more than three parts uh, tends to exhibit uh, sort of these chaotic um, types of dynamics that become hard to uh, forecast. So you can forecast fairly well in the near term, but the farther and farther out you go, the less and less likely you are able to forecast it. And that's because very, very tiny changes in the initial conditions change sort of the trajectory of the thing. And so the brain looks like that. Right. So what we're doing now is it's like putting lots of temperature sensors all over um, and now looking at how does the instead of wind now it's electrical activity. How does it propagate through? Um, and so it's, it's quite a different thing than like a computer or, you know, a, a mechanistic kind of thing where thing A happens and you know, the cranks turn and you reliably get this other thing out is very much different. Um, it, it follows these dynamical systems sort of. Um, properties. And so, you know, going back with what we're talking about, the, you know, the single neurons. So there's some neurons that reliably uh, activate um, because of direct sensory input. That's kind of like the initial wind currents. You know, some of them are in, you know, North Dakota, some of them are in Florida. And by the time you get to the association cortices, right, they're having, they're having some effect. Um, and, you know, it's not always the same, but what's interesting is that it tends to have the same effect, which enables, you know, sort of learning, associative learning and, and these other things as well as, as decisions. So one thing I want, I want to talk about is how things like certain neuropsychiatric disorders can impact cognition. And we've sort of built up this concept of a schema in our toolkit, which is just some sort of complex model that the brain constructs for a given situation. And it contains lots of different types of information, sensory information, information about value. It's connected to memory systems. Before we get there, is there anything else you want to cover 
that you think we about cognition that that would be important to convey before we talk about the impact of say depression or anxiety on these things? No, I think it's a it's a very good segue actually. So when we think about depression and anxiety, again, this is something where I think we all have an intuition for it. Um, these are bad things. Um, when someone is depressed, you don't feel good. Um, you don't want to be depressed. And you also tend to look at the world in an overly negative way. I think everyone probably has a pretty good intuition for that. Can you start to talk about how something like depression or anxiety would impact some of these uh, aspects of cognition that you've talked about and how, what, you know, what do we actually know there at the level of neurons? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what, what I want to preface this by is that, uh, you know, what we call depression and anxiety uh, is probably several different things, meaning that different things in the system can go wrong. And so, you know, two different people, if they, you know, if, uh, you know, they present with anxiety, it might be because of different reasons. For instance, uh, there's one structure called the amygdala, which probably many people have heard about, um, that uh, when it becomes hyperactive, it tends to uh, produce anxious states. So things like uh, post-traumatic uh, stress disorder, PTSD, is strongly associated with hyperactivity in the amygdala. And so... Um, it's a system that uh, it receives a lot of direct input. It receives output of the hippocampus, which is an essential uh, memory system. Um, and it seems its job seems to be to form relatively simple associations, right? So, um, you know, like in combat, if, you know, you saw a certain type of, uh, you know, vehicle right before you hit a landmine or something, you know, and then you're in a completely different context. You're in North America and you see that vehicle, right? You get this, um, you know, stress response. And so the, you know, we think that the amygdala does that, that kind of thing. And the reason you get the stress response is that uh, there are, you know, many small little nuclei that are in, you know, around the brainstem, midbrain um, that secrete certain um, neurotransmitters and uh, hormones that trigger stress response. Now, other types, and this is the, this is the, so that, that's kind of one type that, mm -hmm. that I'll put out there. And it's not necessarily that they're, you know, they're clean types and it's one thing or the other. Um, that's just kind of one form that seems to show up, but I want to talk about a different form that, that ties in better with the schemas. Uh, other people that present with depression, and anxiety, if you, if you put them in a um, magnetic resonance imaging machine, and you look at where blood flow is occurring and you can give them stimulus or you can ask them questions or whatever. And if you look at how the blood flow is changing, we can get what's called a functional MRI. I, I don't do this work, but I, I think it's important to, uh, you know, to sort of discuss this and then we can talk about it in animal models. Um, and what you oftentimes see is that there's a brain region called the anterior cingulate cortex that uh, is sort of on the midline. So it's, it's sort of medial in the prefrontal cortex. Uh, it becomes hyperactive. And this correlates very strongly with uh, anxiety mm -hmm. um, and especially what's called negative rumination. And so what this is, is this is uh, unwanted compulsive thoughts about something bad that either did happen or, you know, could happen. So, you know, bereavement is a good one. Like you just can't get over, you know, loved one dying. Or on the other hand, it could be, you know, I'm afraid of flying because, you know, might get hijacked or, you know, something that's very low probability has never happened to you that, you know, really shouldn't have cause for worrying about it, but you do, and you just can't, you just can't help it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so when those things when those things are happening, uh, it looks like the intersingulate uh, is involved in in that. And so this is one brain region that I've been studying in animals, and uh, it's a little bit special for a few reasons. One of which is that it's one of these uh, parts of the neocortex that's phylogenetically conserved. So uh, whereas you know a rat doesn't have this um, uh, lateral prefrontal cortex that that's unique to the um, primates or sorry the great apes um, and other other monkeys as well uh, the medial parts are conserved so you can find a homologue of that in you know rats mice um, actually I don't know about alligators I, I don't know too much about the other animals anyway. Um, so the anterior cingulate, though, has uh, is has sort of special connectivity with the hippocampus. So going back to what you were mentioning before about how these schemas sort of, you know, there's some product of your experience, either direct experience or things you've read on the internet or have heard from your friends or all of these different things, right? They They get sort of processed in your memory systems and then exported in some way to your neocortex. And it looks like the anterior cingulate has uh, a very strong connectivity uh, with the hippocampus. So it somehow is, is very strongly linked with, with the memory systems or you know, the, one of the key components of the memory system. But this anterior cingulate is also well connected with these sort of brainstem structures that trigger uh, anxious-like behaviors, so freezing. Um, it's also connected with um, neurons in what's called the uh, lateral hypothalamus that release CRH, the corticotropin releasing hormone, which gives you the adrenaline response. So it's hooked and it's hooked up to other cells that control heart rate and breathing and all this other physiological stuff that you feel with stress. So what it looks like is that this area is somehow, you know, at this nexus of, um, you know, learning systems, but it's more than just learning. It's, it's the knowledge that has been acquired and it's sort of these mental models or schemas. And so the, this interesting of the cortex seems to be important for schemas. And, you know, again, it's connected with sort of the stress effectors. So the things that actually produce the physiological symptoms of stress. Um, and what's, you know, the sort of state of the art, what we know is that um, antidepressants, for instance, reduce activity there. Uh, for people with major depression who do not respond to um, drugs, drug treatments, the last line of defense is actually to go in and make lesions of this anterior cingulate. So you go in with an electrode, you know, a surgeon goes in with an electrode, um, actually p- applies electrical current to essentially bo- uh, ablate that uh, material. And the success rate is like more than two thirds. So these are people who, you know, could barely get out of bed, um, you know, we're not responsive to several different kinds of drugs, to talk therapy, to anything. You go in and zap it and I'm like, hey, all right, things, things aren't so bad. Um, which, you know, I think is why, you know, myself and other people are, are quite interested in, in, you know, what that brain region is doing. One thing I'll add to this is that, you know, even though it seems to be a key player in anxiety and depression, to really understand what's going on, we have to know what it's doing sort of in, um, in other contexts as well. Like what's its main job? And then we, we have to know that in order to know how does it go wrong? I see. Yeah. It kind of comes back to the, um, the notion you touched on earlier of thinking in neuroethological terms, 
Like right. what is what is actually the circuit or this area doing? Why did it evolve? What is it doing for the animal in its natural state? And that can perhaps help help you guys make sense of what it's doing when it goes awry. Yes, exactly. And uh, if if I can, well, a bit of this is speculation, but one of the one of the kind of neat things that uh, you know has come to my attention. So, you know, one of the things, hopefully, well, not hopefully, but one unfortunate thing about sciences is that we end up getting what's called siloed, meaning that, uh, you know, I might study the anterior cingulate cortex, um, somebody else is studying, you know, what olfaction or something, you know, something else. And that we don't necessarily, those communities don't necessarily talk a lot, partly because, you know, there's now hundreds of thousands of research articles in each one of these disciplines. And it's, it's become, there's just too much information for any one person to, to synthesize. And so we're kind of, kind of forced, uh, in, uh, in that way. Um, but, uh, what's interesting about the, sorry, coming back to the anterior cingulate cortex, uh, what's, what's interesting about that is that in one of these other silos, people have been looking at what's called observational learning. And so if you put, again, someone in a functional magnetic resonance uh, imaging system and, um, so first of all, if you give them pain, so if you you know if you poke them on the finger a little bit or whatever, you'll see part of this uh, the cingulate cortex light up. It's actually a little bit more posterior, so it's not exactly the same anterior cingulate, but it's it's a continuum. Just to be you know clear about this, so if you poke them, you'll see that parts seem to respond to pain. They also respond to videos of people in pain. It also for people that are in precarious situations. So, you know, if you've ever seen an image of, you know, again, for me, like in mountain biking, if you see someone, you know, biking on the skinny little trail that's right on a cliff, right? It, it makes me sweat, you know, it makes me quite uncomfortable. Um, again, even though I've, I haven't done that, I've not gotten hurt in doing that. But, you know, I, what I know about the world is that there's gravity and that, you know, trails have gravel on them and I know they're slippery. So it's quite conceivable you know, I might be about to see some dude, you know, fall off the, fall off the cliff. Um, and, you know, coming back to why do people, why do people do that? Again, you know, it's this idea that there's a social component to it. And so, um, you know, particularly, you know, what we know about uh, primate behavior is that there are dominant, you know, there's sort of this, um, you know, social dominance hierarchies and there's the you know, the alpha male and, you know, people will challenge the alpha male. So if I'm a, if I'm a, you know, upcoming uh, teenager monkey and I see my buddy go over and challenge the alpha and get his butt completely kicked, it's like, well, maybe I shouldn't do that. Right. Because if I do it, A, I might get hurt and B, you know, by doing that, that's going to lower my social standing. And so, you know, uh, the other animals in my troop might not share as much food or, you know, I might not get as much benefit. So I think that's where this, this comes from, that what, what our brain does is it's now so attuned to taking in information so that we don't necessarily have to make the mistakes. So we can learn from the mistakes of others so that we ourselves don't, don't mediate them. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, this is, this is a speculation. And the reason I think that we get this physiological responses is that it's important for the learning process. So we talked about reinforcement learning before that you actually, you know, you need to feel like if it tastes good, you know, the value goes up. If it tastes bad or it hurts, right, the value goes down. 
And so by watching these videos, by actually embodying, oh, you know, by actually embodying uh, a negative aspect of state of fear, worry, whatever, we're actually learning from that. And that, that mm-hmm. that's a, a useful component of, of learning. Yeah. It's like, um, and then actually, you know, feeling the pain that, you know, if my, uh, you know, teenage uh, monkey buddies get his butt kicked, I'm actually feeling, you know, empathy for him, but that's actually helping me learn my, is driving my learning systems without having to actually suffer the consequences directly. Yeah. It, it makes sense. You might think, you know, I'm someone who's like really sensitive to, uh, you know, if I'm watching a movie or something and I see someone get a paper cut, like I almost can't stand it. Um, now it doesn't obviously literally hurt like me getting a paper cut does, but there is this sort mm-hmm. of real physiological response, even if it's not fully what I would get if I was in that situation. And you know, naively, you know, one might think, well, why do I? Why does that type of response in me need to be baked in at all? But if what you're saying is true, it almost sounds like the physiological side of it, the actual feeling of the simulated thing that I have in mind or that I'm viewing is somehow necessary for, for the le- a learning component of this that, that needs to be there. Yeah, absolutely. Like I think, you know, the under, and again, it's speculation, but you know, I would, I would put a good wager that, that this is true. Um, but that, you know, the systems can have ex- exaggerated responses. So, you know, a paper cut is sort of, you know, is, is a great example. It's something, you know, you don't want to have happen, but it's not, it's not life-threatening either. It's not the same as, uh, you know, watching uh, people do insane stunts and, and feeling that. Um, and if we can actually cycle back, I think this actually makes a good segue. So back, back to depression. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one, so what does that mean? Well, in depression, linking this back to the schemas is that depression and anxiety are oftentimes associated with what are called negative schemas. So these are schemas in which you expect bad things to happen, even though you don't, even though the evidence you've had, shouldn't really necessarily suspect that. You know, one example of this is that, uh, you know, if I'm sitting in a room full of people and I'm kind of glancing around and I see someone who's kind of looking in my direction with a scowl, if, you know, if you have, um, you know, a positive schema, you, you might think, oh, that, you know, what happened to that guy? Maybe, you know, maybe he just got dumped or, you know, he lost some money in the stock market. You know, we don't know, who knows? But if you have a negative schema, you might think, oh, gee, that guy, you know, he doesn't like me. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, it, it's something uh, sort of internalized that there's some negative thing about you that's causing this to happen. So, you know, that would be an example of a, a negative schema. I mean, also the example I gave before about flying and having, a, um, you know, flying, your, your chances of dying in flight are much less than other modes of transportation, particularly driving. But, you know, the sort of the, the fear states and the negative schemas aren't necessarily driven by facts. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a testament to this overlap between or intersection between learning and memory systems and emotion systems. So, so two people could have the exact same schema, the exact same mental model of something they're looking at or something that they're imagining, but one person might just be biased towards, you know, pulling that in a negative direction and framing it in terms of fear or, you know, just thinking, thinking about something negatively, everything else is the same. We might, we might both be thinking about the same airplane and the same vacation, but you know, you're thinking about the positive, the positive side of where you're going when you get on the plane. And I'm simply thinking about the negative side of how much I hate flying. Yeah. So I, I would actually phrase that a little bit differently. And I would say that uh, you and I might have the same data. So pretend that we have mm. the same data, but that your schema is a little bit negative than mine because of other experiences you had that weren't related to that data. 
right? So by data, I mean, you know, here's a, here's a little dossier on everything we know about flying. So pretend you and I didn't know anything about airplanes. We got this pamphlet on, you know, here's, here's how it works. Here's, you know, safety records and all that stuff. The, you know, sort of the, the schemas that we develop or the internal models we develop are going to be colored by all sorts of other things, other life experiences, also by genetics and other things that aren't even in our control. Um, and that then having that, you know, having constructed that model and then we ask, you know, someone asks you and then I, you know, how do you feel about this? And I'm like, oh, you know, instead of taking, uh, you know, a boat across the Atlantic for a week to get to London, you, know, you can now do it in six hours. It's amazing. I'm going to see Big Ben versus, oh, that's up in the air. This is a new technology. You know, if, if that thing falls, you know, I'm dead. And you know. so I think, I think that is, that's how I would think about it. Um, you know, and again, this, it starts to get more into the, the psychology literature or the psychology and that I'm not nearly as well versed in, but you could, you could very much imagine that these aren't fixed things. And so they can wax and wane with, you know, the variety of neurotransmitters and hormones that you've got. So, you, you know, one, you might kind of feel one way about something one day and then you sleep poorly. And then the next day, you know, we know that uh, sleep disruption affects all sorts of hormones and uh, neurotransmitter concentrations. And so you might think differently about it the next day. So these aren't necessarily sort of fixed entities. Mm -hmm. The other thing I wanted to get your perspective on is how, you know, different drugs affect these kinds of things, how, how drugs can sort of tip the scales one way or the other in terms of how we make decisions, what decisions we're, we're predisposed to making, um, and things like, you know, schemas and how we're, how we're modeling the world. There's, yeah. a, there's a variety of directions we could take on this. Um, I know that one, one drug class that you've looked at somewhat are stimulants, amphetamines. And I'm wondering if you could comment a little bit about how that class of drugs affects things like decision-making and, and attention. I think something like Adderall, for example, would be something that a lot of people have heard about, but I know that there's some interesting, some interesting effects of these things that differ in terms of, you know, the dose you take or whether or not you're taking them acutely or chronically. Absolutely. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it gets very complicated uh, because the direct action of the drug can be different than, um, if you've, so first of all, it, it often depends on dose. So one thing that shows up all the time in pharmacology is that a little bit of something can have a different effect than a lot of something. And so, you know, a, a good example of that would be caffeine or alcohol. So a little bit of caffeine, a little bit of alcohol can actually increase attention, uh, increase, you know, perceived energy. Uh, but you know, if you then go and have uh, 20 espressos on a dare or something, you know, you, your, your attention actually uh, falls off. So same, same thing happens with amphetamine. So low levels of amphetamine increase attention, vigilance, um, which again, you know, these are psychological terms that uh, I think we're coming close to understanding more in terms of what does that mean in terms of neural, neural function. Um, and it can affect how people value things. And as you increase the dose, those effects kind of uh, revert. So at, at low dose, oftentimes it has a very facilitating effect on uh, attention, memory retention, uh, all those sorts of things. But at a higher dose, it has a deleterious effect. One, one really interesting thing, and this goes to how memory occurs, 
is that, uh, so let's talk about learning for a minute. So if you teach, uh, so you're gonna teach a rat to do something, um, you know, say when the light comes on, he presses a lever, he gets some reward. If you give him a little bit of amphetamine, uh, he can oftentimes learn that more quickly. And so we can measure that in two ways. Like how many trials does it take to get to the criteria or you give them a certain number of trials. So let's say we, we do it 20 times on day one and then we come back on day two and just ask how quickly can they do it or how well did they do it? Um, if you give them amphetamine at low dose and do the same number of trials and then ask the same the next day, it looks like they've had more training, right? So they, they actually look better at it. What's really interesting though, is you can actually, you can train them without amphetamine, give them the 20 trials, wait a half an hour, then give them amphetamine, bring it back the next day. And you also see this facilitating effect. And the, the most likely explanation for that is that uh, a lot of learning occurs in your downtime. Mm-hmm. So when, when you're sleeping, but even quiet sort of restfulness, what appears to happen is that at least in some cases, uh, the brain tends to recapitulate the activity that was going on to, when you were doing the task. And so it looks like amphetamine can affect not only the direct experience, but also sort of the brain's recreation of that afterwards. And so, you know, this is probably, this is one reason that, you know, good sleep is important and probably just having downtime, you know, hanging out in a hammock or mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah, that's interesting. The The brain is recapitulating what happened to it in the moment and how it does that and whether or not there's a drug in the system can impact how that's happening and whether or not whether or not uh, the memory is consolidated as much or, or, or gets weakened, for example. Exactly, yeah. I know this yeah. isn't your direct area, but that actually, so that, that reminds me of this, this other topic that I've discussed many times on the podcast, stuff that's getting a lot of attention um, in, in the popular media as well with some of the concepts you were telling us about earlier, and that's what psychedelics have been doing in various clinical trials. The thing that I wanted your take on here is the following. You know, what strikes me as is, is that you've seen these very striking clinical trial results so far for things like depression, for things like addiction, that are very complex disorders that we really don't understand. And they're very personal, right? The way that one person's depression or addiction is going to manifest is not going to be identical to someone else's. And you've seen some of these drugs in the context of psychotherapy have very, very strong effects at alleviating, say, a severe addiction or severe depression. And you've seen comparable, at least directionally similar effects with different drugs. So for example, you know, addiction, you know, addiction effects for something like ibogaine and psilocybin. They're both strongly psychoactive, but they're operating through different mechanisms. They're different drugs. Um, you know, something like MDMA and psilocybin for things like, you know, depression or PTSD. And so directionally, you're seeing these, these similar effects. They're alleviating these very negative, very complex neuropsychiatric disorders. We don't know exactly how all these things are working at a mechanistic level, but you know, it sort of reminds me of the things you were talking about earlier around schemas and our ability to modulate, you know, sort of the the positive or the negative valence on the schema. And I'm I'm wondering if you've thought at all about, you know, how or why drugs like this might be having this type of effect on something like severe depression. That uh, yeah, that is the trillion dollar question. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I mean that that really. Uh, you know, if we could answer that question, we would know so much about the brain and uh, it would be, be marvelous. It's a, you know, 
unpacking what you've just asked touches on a lot of very important, very fundamental things. Uh, so let me preface this uh, by saying uh, that what a lot of the deleterious things on schema, so the things that tend to push towards uh, depression, towards anxiety, towards the negative schemas, uh, things like stress, things like um, psychostimulant abuse, uh, things like uh, inflammation, which turns out to be a big one. Hmm. Um, oh, one of the things all these do is they uh, reduce spine density in a few areas, including this anterior cingulate cortex and in the hippocampus. Uh, they do a lot of other stuff too. So, so they reduce the number of connections in certain parts of the brain. Yes. Uh, and what may be happening, and again, there, there's some evidence for this, but again, you know, everything in neuroscience, it's, uh, you know, it takes a lot of evidence to say things, to say anything with a lot of confidence, but my, uh, I'll give you my take. And again, this is partly speculative. Mm-hmm. What we do know is that spines, uh, the spines are lost. What I believe is happening is that the spines that remain uh, essentially become dominant and they become dominant in such a way that now it's hard to change that schema. So as I was mentioning before, I mean, these schemas, they can be updated, they, you know, from day to day, even they can kind of modulate a little bit, right? They, they shouldn't really be, be fixed. Like as new information comes in, you should, you know, you should update that. Um, but if you start to lose a lot of spines and then the ones that are left over, what happens is that you, you, these schemas sort of crystallize into something. And if that something isn't good, or, you know, is associated with a negative affective outcomes, what happens is that as the information comes in, it sort of runs this schema. You can't really change the schema. Um, so imagine something like the anterior cingulate cortex. The anterior cingulate cortex kind of filters that, and then it starts to activate um, these deep brain structures that, you know, trigger these sort of anxious, uh, depressive sort of phenotypes, right? And so that would be, you know, one way to think about this. Well, how, how would you get over that? Well, if you could, you know, for instance, make it more likely that you could then update these schemas, that would be one thing to do. One thing that all the, um, one thing that all the psychedelics do is that they regrow spines in the neocortex like mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah. The like, last, the last guest I had on was Alex Kwan and he actually showed us some okay. of that data where you give the mouse psilocybin in this case and new spines start forming. There's a net gain in number of spines forming in certain parts of the neocortex. But what was especially interesting to me was this continues to happen after the drug is gone. Yeah. Uh, and so we don't understand the molecular mechanisms. So there are a number of molecules that are floating around that serve as growth factors. Essentially, they, they serve as molecular signals to, um, you know, essentially polymerize the, the cytoskeleton in, inside the neuron, which then forms the synapse. And then a number of other things have to happen to make, to make that uh, functional. Um, but it turns out that there was a, a phenomenal paper a few years ago that showed that many different psychedelics do this. So psilocybin, LSD, a uh, very short acting one called DOI and a few others. Uh, it turns out that ketamine does this as well, hmm. even though it's site of action. So the, the, the psychedelics, the main psychedelic action happens because of agonist, agonism of the what's called the 5-HT2A receptor. So that's one of the serotonin receptors. 
Uh, so when you agonize that, you get the psychedelic effects. If you block that, even if you get the psychedelic, you don't get the psychedelic effects. Um, whereas ketamine uh, blocks an NMDA receptor, which is which is quite different. But what's interesting is that the ketamine-induced spine growth depends on the 5-HT2A receptor. So even though its primary site of action is a different receptor type, it somehow mm -hmm. is also tickling that 5-HT2A. Hmm. Um, we also know that uh, um, antidepressants also grow spines, but much, much slower. I see. So it's, it's really tempting to speculate that that's why it takes antidepressants so long to work, whereas psychedelics you know, tend to go very quickly. Now, we have, we have no idea why, and mm -hmm. there can be, uh, so I've been putting a lot of thought towards this recently, uh, and there are several different explanations. So one of which is that you could turn down the effectors, meaning those, you know, very deep brain centers that trigger uh, avoidance and freezing and increased heart rate and, you know, all those physiological symptoms. It might somehow turn down their excitability. Maybe they become hyperactive. Uh, number two, it could somehow be affecting the memory slash schemas. Like mm -hmm. maybe it somehow, you know, attenuates those. Um, a third possibility is that uh, what they might be able to do is help uh, competing memories or brain systems uh, become more competitive against the negative schemas. Hmm. So what I mean by that is that you're not, you know, what the general consensus is, is that, you know, if you're going to play chess, you have like a chess schema that you're using, right? But if you're going to go and do something else that, you know, you can somehow swap these uh, mental models in and out as, as you need to. Um, and what we also know is that when you, when an animal or human learns, has a bad experience, and generates fear response, that fear response will attenuate over several days, like a week to two weeks. So if you, you, know, if you shock a, a rat or a mouse uh, in a chamber and then you put them back in there the next day, they freeze, you keep putting them in there day after day, what you see is that the freezing is less and less and less. That's not because they're forgetting, because if you give them a reminder, even a very brief reminder, that memory comes back lickety split. What seems to happen in the interim time is that some competing safe memory comes on um, that sort of suppresses all that, you know, the, the fear response. So again, it could also be that what psychedelics are doing is they're potentiating other ways of, you know, for a better way to describe this, that they're potentiating some other way to look at the problem so that you're not predominated by the sort of negative way of looking at it. And when you do that, then you're not sort of triggering the activation of those uh, stress effectors. Mm -hmm. but I, I, right now it's all speculative. Like it, it might be one or more of those things or something I didn't even mention. Mm -hmm. it's, it's sort of the wild, wild west for psychedelic research right now. Yeah. But, but the common thread is whenever it's been looked for, it sounds like there is this increase or at least change in the amount of structural plasticity that's happening in response to these drugs. And mm -hmm. that's, that's probably what you would expect if, if they were to have this kind of effect, right? Because at, at some level, it must be true that if you're going to get over something like depression or addiction, right, circuits need to change. They need to be sort of hooked up differently, um, however that manifests. So if, if there is increased plasticity, that's at least making it uh, possible for such a change to occur. Yeah. Uh, I agree. But how, how it happens, uh, that's, uh, yeah. 
that's, that's hopefully, the hopefully we'll know, you know, within years, but it's, it's hard to, hard to forecast in neuroscience. But it's sort of interesting because it also brings up, um, you know, maybe of interest to your listeners is uh, it brings up an ethical question as well. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly someone who has severe trauma in their past and, and, you know, here's a way to help them. Right. I think, I don't think anybody would really argue that that's sort of an ethical use, but you, you sort of get into the slippery slope when you can start to modify memories or responses to memories. Um, and, you know, this is where, pop culture and other people may be a little ahead of the game. So one of my favorite movies is uh, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, hmm. uh, which I forget how many years ago that was, but at that time it was completely, you know, fantasy, fantasy land. Um, but who knows with, with current technology, how things are going, you know, is, is it okay to just go in and modify people's memory? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and I don't think we're too far from, from, that I don't think so. Well, because imagine, you know, imagine if you knew, hey, I could, you know, I could make a lot of money, but it's going to cause suffering of a bunch of people. But afterwards, I could just have that erased from my mind. <laughs> there's people who would do that. <laughs> right. So, you know, I mean, well, there's this link of, uh, well, I, I don't know how strong the evidence is, but it's certainly, you know, in pop culture, the idea that, uh, you know, CEOs sort of lack empathy and they kind of have to because they have to make decisions that are, you know, often going to have negative consequences for employees or other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, almost a more utilitarian mindset. Might be negative in the short term, even if it's beneficial in the longer term or whatever. But, you know, one of the things I did want to ask you about, and, and again, we're going to step away from, you know, the actual science and your research a little bit, but but I think that's okay. Um, if you're okay with it, I wanted to ask, mm-hmm. ask you, someone like you, you know, what your general take is on the impact of, you know, mobile technology and social media on cognition. And, you know, I think everyone probably has uh, an opinion about this that's directionally similar, but I thought you might have an interesting perspective. You know, I I would speculate that many people listening probably have had a similar experience to me, which is that over time, as our cell phones got more and more intriguing and, and powerful, and as we spend more time online and engaging with social media, speaking for myself, you know, my ability to sustain attention on one thing deeply for a long time has degraded somewhat over time. And, you know, when I start to think about people, basically anyone younger than me, you know, I'm sort of about, I think, uh, as young as you can be, where m- most of my childhood was spent in the absence of these technologies. When I start to think about people who've grown up with, you know, that cell phone in their pocket the whole time, you know, what is that doing to their brain and their ability to, to have a cognition that's similar to mine, how much different could, you know, the way that people that are just growing up now, uh, how much different is their cognition going to be their ability to sustain attention and to think about things in the way that I implicitly assume everyone else thinks about, thinks about them. Uh, You know, what's your take about on how social media in particular is affecting or degrading our ability to focus and attend and decide? Sorry, what'd you say? No, just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, I well, let me let me answer a, a, a related question first. So that that kind of follows from what we've been discussing so far, which is that you know social media in particular, I think, tends to uh, or has enabled uh, information filters or information bubbles, unlike what people have seen before. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I think we have no idea what the consequences are. And I think, you know, I, I worry, again, this is hand-waving speculation. This is not, it's not me as a scientist. This is me sort of as a, I don't know, general person and parent uh, sort of worried about this, the state of things that, uh, you know, what I was mentioning about schemas is that it's all a function of not only your direct experience, but what you're reading, what you're hearing from people. Um, and so, you know, how can you possibly, I, I don't know how you explain sort of the bifurcation that you see on a lot of topics, right? Masking versus anti-masking. Like how can people be, uh, you know, again, take, if everybody had the same information, you wouldn't think it would be so polarized, right? You'd have some distribution where, you know, most people think that some are on one extreme end or the other, but it's really kind of a bimodal thing that it's like you, you have to do it or you're Hitler, or, you know, if you do it, then you hate freedom, mm-hmm. right? It's really, right? The, the thinking around it is, is very, almost diametrically opposed. Um, and, and, you know, you can see that in a lot of places. I mean, I think, in the, in the political sphere, you know, particularly. Um, and so I think, you know, again, I think social media is one of the enablers of that. I think it's one of the reasons that, um, uh, what do I want to say, manipulation of information on social media platforms is, is really a problem and really needs to be addressed. So, you know, the things that were going on with uh, certain uh, platforms before uh, the last, I guess the last two US elections, you know, it's really problematic where, you know, you can pay to either bump up or bump down certain information, whether it's true or not, uh, you know, probably has a big influence on the way people see the world and interpret things. And, you know, that has huge influence on not only politics, but, you know, it's, it's the name of the game in terms of um, selling people things and, you know, commercialism. So, you know, at some point we really got to, think about, you know, what's, what's it doing? What's the long-term consequences? Now onto your other question, which was, you know, was it due to uh, attention spans? Um, I have no idea. That's really outside of, you know, what, what I know directly. Um, You know, again, the, the sort of, uh, what do I say? Sort of one of the popular interpretations is that, you know, you get your phone out because you want to see, you know, you're hoping to see a like on something or you're hoping to see, you know, an interesting story. And when that happens, that's something salient to you. You get this little dopamine hit and that, that's reinforcing. Again, the idea that dopamine, you know, it, it doesn't say whether it's good or bad, but that it's relevant to you. And so in that case, it doesn't really matter if someone's saying, you know, this politically, this, this person who's uh, politically uh, juxtaposed to your positions something bad happened to them or they said something outrageous, right? It doesn't necessarily mean if it's good or bad, but it's just as relevant to you and your schemas and your, you know, the, the uh, group that you associate with. Um, and so, you know, how much does that interfere with getting, you know, the, the business of what you need to do during the day done? You know, for me personally, it, I mean, it certainly is alluring. Mm-hmm. Right? People really like information. And now that we essentially have this, unlimited bandwidth of information of various quality coming at us all the time. Yeah. It's, it, it gets hard to concentrate on other things. Are you, how intentional are you? So given your background and the nature of, you know, your work, how intentional are you with, you know, putting in guardrails to limit access to your phone and things like that? Or if you have kids, do you have any, do you have any guardrails that you put up for them? 
I do. And I, <laughs> you know, uh, I know the, the whole argument of nature versus nurture is way outside of the scope of, of uh, what we're talking about. So I, I don't know the reason, but uh, I have a 14 year old daughter and, you know, that's at the age now where she reports at school that many, many of the kids uh, in class when they have downtime, she said they're just on their phone. And so it's been hard for her to make friends. We just, we uh, relocated school districts recently. Um, you know, so I certainly see that even though she herself doesn't have any uh, aspirations to, but I, I absolutely, you know, would put, put limits on stuff. So we have limits on screen time. Um, we, you know, I use the parental controls on all the devices uh, mm-hmm. to try to limit it. Um, you know, me personally, my kids are uh, more interested in things like Minecraft, which I think is not, I don't know, doesn't really have a lot of the problems of what we are talking about, but as long as it's within reason. But social media, yeah, I mean, you know, I think, uh, I hate to say it, I, I don't like to make this comparison, but it's, it's, it's almost like drugs where, mm-hmm. you know, I, I keep having to relay this to my kids too, that uh, we now know that the prefrontal cortex in humans isn't fully matured until now mid-20s. used to be thought it was like 18 and then it was 20 and it, you know, it just keeps getting pushed back and back. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you start to have things drugs or experiences that start to influence that uh, before it's fully developed, I think you get different um, outcomes. Uh, to me, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of funny, right? So me growing up, I'm a product of the early 70s. So I didn't even have a computer until I went to college. <laughs> I didn't have a cell phone until, I don't know, was like 30. Uh, so to me, it's very, it, it occurred very late. Um, neighbors in my neighborhood are in their 70s. We were just having an internet issue recently. It was very intermittent. And I asked both of my neighbors, one is 65, the other one's again is in the 70s. I was like, oh, are you having problems with your internet? And each one of them said, I don't know. I haven't used it for a couple of days. And I was like, what? <laughs> Could check anything? So, you know, I think definitely we can see the, uh, you know, the progression. Well, I don't but I think, think it's important to limit it. I, I, I really do. I try to limit it on, on myself. Uh, I tend to creep back to spending too much time, mostly on news aggregators more so than other things, but mm-hmm. even that's too much. So it takes an active, uh, active battle. I don't want to take too much more of your time, Aaron. Uh, you've been very generous. Any final thoughts you want to leave people with about any of the general topics we were talking about within the realm of cognitive neuroscience or any any resources, books, or, or places on the internet people might go to to learn more about this stuff, generally speaking, if they, if they don't have a hardcore neuroscience background? That is a really good question. Um, the, I guess one, one passing thought I would like to leave people with is unfortunate. Well, uh, one is a sort of tale of caution, which is, you know, beware of what you read. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of journalism I see on science is, is pretty off. Um, and it's, it's really hard to negotiate fact from fiction without having some expertise in it. So, you know, definitely when you read something, and especially if it's making bold claims, you know, verify the source, try to look into it a little bit before you take it uh, on its face, <laughs> which is something I, I actually have an exercise that I have my undergraduates do. So they have to take something in the news and then uh, kind of do a critical review of it. 
Uh, and I wish there was a really trustworthy source of information. I will say that the NIH, National Institute of, of Health, uh, they're the chief sponsor of a lot of the uh, biomedical research that goes on in the United States. They do a good job. So they're, they're quite uh, unbiased in information. So that's a good place to you know, look, look for things. Um, you know, I also think, I think the future is pretty, you know, bright in terms of fixing some of the problems that we've got, like depression and anxiety. Uh, I would, you know, again, caution people. I think psychedelics uh, are probably uh, going to be very efficacious, but, you know, beware of too many bold claims or, you know, I think there's going to be a gold rush in terms of people trying to profit off of it and, mm -hmm. you know, kind of making bold claims and those sorts of things. So, you know, do, do your due diligence on that end. All right, Professor Aaron Gruber, thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks, Nick. It was a pleasure talking with you today.